So, Squirrel will say something about it. Yeah, him, so. he will. He will. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. It is Wednesday, the 8th day of February, 2023, and you are listening to Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated primarily to the public reading of scriptures. That's the old one. Podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. And we live stream every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And then you can download the audio podcast wherever you find fine podcasts. And quite a few places where you find questionable podcasts as well, just so you know. And we are a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. I would encourage you to head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are sure to find something worth listening to, and I would encourage you to do that. Mm. This morning I've got uh, Montana Coffee Traders Glacier Blend in my cup, which is some really good stuff. It's the only flavored coffee I really like. I don't I don't go for flavored coffee. Glacier Blend has a just a hint of vanilla. It's not real strong, but it's it's really good. Um, let's see. I was about to talk about something. Yeah. How could I miss it? We had the State of the Union last night. I did not watch it. I was uh, logged in and attending uh Dr. Jeff Moore's class on Acts and the Pauline Epistles last night. And uh, so I did not watch the State of the Union. I did, however, listen to some news programs this morning. And it doesn't sound like many of the people that I listened to were very impressed with Joe Biden. Um, uh, Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, um, very much just flat out called it dishonest and it, it may very well have been like i said i didn't listen but it doesn't sound it, it sounds like it went over like a chinese spy balloon actually no the chinese spy balloon went over just fine so we'll just let that go uh, all right uh today we have prayers from the book of common prayer we got a reading from john macarthur's daily readings from the life of christ and then we are jumping back into our Study Bible level Bible study, and we're looking at Deuteronomy. Today we're going to look at 19 verses, chapter 4, 21 through 40, is what we're going to get a look at today. So let us begin. And by the way, thank you all for the emails. You can reach me at squirrelchatter at protonmail.com. I love to hear from you. A lot of people are liking the study Bible level Bible study. Uh, many of you have never studied Deuteronomy, so that's that's kind of fun. Um, and so I appreciate the, the notes of encouragement. And if you have questions or comments, I would encourage you to drop me a line at squirrelchatter at protonmail.com. And of course, I'm on Twitter as well, uh, at Shinar Squirrel on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Shinar Squirrel on Twitter, Gitter, Gab, I, I use the same, uh, same basic uh, handle on all of those, so you should be able to find me just fine. I am on multiple social media platforms. I'm not trying to hide. Not trying to hide at all. All right, let us begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, We have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. 
But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now a prayer, or a reading from uh, Dr. MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, Volume 1. The devotional this morning is entitled, Fasting as Part of Preparation for Testing. Uh, let me back up. When I say this morning, I mean the morning we're doing here. I don't mean if you were if you had started on January 1st with this devotional, you're way ahead of us. <laughs> so just so you know, we've only, we, we were only reading, we were started, started out just reading two a week. Now we're reading five a week. There are seven in the week. So we're going to be slowly falling behind as we move through the year, but that's okay. So our reading for this morning is entitled Fasting as Part of Preparation for Testing. The verse is Matthew 4, 2. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Dr. MacArthur writes, For a quite lengthy period prior to the three diabolical temptations directed at Jesus, he fasted. We don't know exactly what he did during the 40-day period, but he likely spent most of the time communing with his Heavenly Father. Even in his perfect humanity, Jesus needed solitary preparation time in meditation and prayer, as we all do in anticipating a major testing. Consider how Moses spent 40 years in Midian in prepare, preparation for his leadership of Israel out of Egypt to the Promised Land, or that the Apostle Paul lived three years in the deserts of Arabia before launching his extensive ministries. Matthew reports, with much simplicity and directness, that at the end of the period of fasting, Jesus became hungry. Hunger weakens us physically and somehow leaves us more vulnerable to spiritual attack, which is precisely why Satan often assails us at such times. But temptations that we have anticipated and prayed about have little power to harm us if we constantly rely on the Lord. Jesus though spending more, more than a month in fasting, is a tremendous example to us of remaining alert to spiritual danger, which he did as Satan approached. During the temptations, he did not yield on the slightest point. Ask yourself, what other feelings and conditions, like hunger, serve as ready-made points of entry for spiritual temptation? Knowing this, how can you better keep watching and praying that you might not fall into sin? Referencing Mark 14, 38. Pray for the courage to live with such keen awareness. All right, now a prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we are in Deuteronomy. We are in chapter 4, and we're picking up in verse 21. Now, there's some, some larger pericopes in this passage that I'm going to read before commenting. Um, so it, it might not be as choppy as yesterday was, although I'm about to read one verse and then start talking about it. But uh, there will be some longer passages read, but then I'll go back and, and comment on them. Verse 21 says, Now Yahweh, this is Moses speaking again, Now Yahweh was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Jordan and I would not enter the good land which Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance. We've looked at this back in Numbers um, chapter 20 where... Um, Moses had presented God to the people as angry with the people, although it wasn't God who was angry, it was Moses. So Moses lost his temper. He misrepresented God to the people. And as consequences of that, God told him he could not enter the promised land. We looked at that a few lessons back. 
And so that's what he's referring to here. He continues, for I will die in this land. I shall not cross the Jordan, but you shall cross and take possession of this good land. So keep yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he cut with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which Yahweh your God has commanded you. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. We looked yesterday at the, the fact that they did not see an image of, of God when they were out Mount Sinai. They heard his voice. They saw the smoke and, uh, I believe, thunder. Um, probably flashes of lightning. I don't know. I'd have to go back and read that description in, in Exodus. But they had seen the presence of God without seeing God. And so Moses used that earlier in chapter 4 as a springboard. Sorry, I, I snored last night, and I've got just a little bit of a tickle in the back of my throat. At least I assume I snored. That's the, that's the feeling I've got that when you've got your mouth open all night and you're breathing and things are drying out in the back. Either mouth breathing, if not outright snoring. So, But the, the fact that they hadn't seen an image of God, they hadn't seen the form of God, Moses used that as a springboard to, to repeat the instruction, which is the second commandment, of not to make images of God, not to make idols of God. And so here he is continuing this. He says, don't forget the covenant that God made with you and don't make yourself make for yourselves graven image in the form of anything against which Yahweh your God has commanded you. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is very emphatic about protecting what is his. And he does not share his honor because there is no one and nothing that even approach, approaches his level, level of honorability or glory. The, the, the most glorious item in creation, whatever that may be, the thing that you find most beautiful in this world, whether it's a mountainscape or a starry sky or the moon or, or you know, something that the, the sun or the moon or anything that, that just is just impressive. All of those things simply reflect the glory of God. God doesn't even share his glory with the earth or the mountains or anything like that, and certainly not with any creature. You know, yes. An eagle soaring above is just impressive. And uh, I remember the first time I saw a golden eagle, um, I had not realized how absolutely large they were. And I was driving somewhere. And I'm looking up, you know, I, was, I was up on Manita Pass on I-15 heading south, and this would have been back in my college days. I had a friend in Idaho Falls, and I would quite, quite often drive down to Idaho Falls to visit. And uh, he was actually my martial arts instructor. So it was a, you know, we'd go down and visit and work out and train, and it was a good time. But we were, uh, I was driving south to see him, and I noticed something on the side of the road that I couldn't quite make out. And it was, it appeared to be on top of a fence post, is the, you know, chain link or a barbed wire fence along the side of the freeway. And as I got closer, I realized it was a bird. And as I got even closer, I realized that the bird was taller than the fence post he was sitting on. And I imagine that fence post was at least four feet. The bird was huge. And when I got closer, I, I was first thinking, that's a big buzzard or something like that. Because the golden eagle's all one color. It's not like a bald eagle with the white head. You can spot them easy, but, uh, you know, this is getting close and close and close. And finally I realized this isn't a vulture or anything like that. This is an eagle and it was massive. And that was the first golden eagle I ever saw in person. I've seen them since then. Um, I've seen them just a mile from the house here down by the river. 
they're impressive birds. But they are just a reflection of the glory of God. They really have no intrinsic glory in themselves. And so God is not going to share his glory. He's not going to let someone else share in his honor, the honor that's due to him alone. And so he is a jealous God. Um, the Reformation Study Bible says, see the note on Exodus 25, 20 verse 5. This is that note. Jealous. When used of God, this word describes his passion for his holy name, a zeal that demands the exclusive devotion of his people. It is employed when that claim is threatened by other deities. And then it gives some cross-references that I'll leave out for right now. So, he is a jealous God. He does not share his glory. Now, jealousy is a bad emotion when expressed by human beings in our fallenness. Our jealousy is often a catalyst for sinful behavior. Jealousy, is, as expressed by humans, comes from our pride. It's, you know... I don't deserve to be treated like that, or it's I don't, you know, it, it's either pride or fear. You're, 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 you're proud, and somebody else is receiving attention that you think you ought to receive, or somebody else has received a gift that you think ought, you ought to receive, or it's fear, where, you know, a wife doesn't trust her husband, or a husband doesn't trust her wife, meaning that they believe that, that they're likely to cheat on them. And so that's a jealousy. Whether it's real or not, it's a perceived thing. And, and so when we think of human jealousy, we're thinking about a sinful jealousy that stems from really insecurity, fear, and pride. A weird mixture of insecurity, fear, and pride. And uh, I think it's been said that uh, you know pride is at the root of all human sinfulness. Um, you know, why do I steal stuff? Because I deserve it. Why do I lie to people? Because I don't need to be held accountable to the truth. Why, you know, it's all pride. You, you see how the, the pride works in there? And so, you know, we see that. Now, it also says here, Moses said that God is a consuming fire. So he's a jealous God, and he's a consuming fire. And these are all given as reasons why the Israelites should not make idols to God. Well, fire is often associated with God. There was, there was fire on the mountain when they heard the Ten Commandments. It was smoke and fire. There was, um, and incidentally, there are no volcanoes in that particular area of the world on either side of the Red Sea. So whichever ever location of Mount Sinai you want to claim, the Sinai Peninsula or across the, the Red Sea in Arabia, I go for Arabia, but that's, that's a discussion for another time. Um, wherever you put Mount Sinai, there are no volcanoes, so they weren't watching a volcanic eruption. It was the presence of God, just as it, he led them through the desert with a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. Fire has often been associated with God, especially in his judgment. Um, in Leviticus, you know, it, it's fire that came out of the altar to strike down the, the sons of Aaron who were not worshiping God as he had told them to. So we see, you know, and I'd have to go back and look. Was it fire that came out of the Ark of the Covenant and struck down Uzzah? Or did he just die? I'd have to go back and look. But we see, you know, fire being used as judgment and, and is one of the things that that is associated with God. And it's a symbol of God's holiness. So... God is a has has God is a God who maintains his rights. He 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 is a a God who will not share 
his glory. He will not allow anyone or anything else to be worshipped in his place. Now, when you think about that, it's like there's false worship going on all over the world, and there was false worship going on at that time as well. What do we mean when we say that God will not put up with it? Well, God is long-suffering, but the day is coming. The day is coming when, when his judgment will fall, and wicked and idolaters will not stand in the day of judgment. And so he will reclaim what is his. All right, Moses continues here, and beginning in verse 25, he's starting to lay out what Israel is going to be like living in the land. He says, When you become the father of children and children's children and remain long in the land and act corruptly and make a graven image in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God so as to provoke him for anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days on it but will be utterly destroyed. And Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, and you will remain few in number among the nations where Yahweh drives you. And there you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek Yahweh your God, and you will find him. For you will search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Excuse me. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the last days you will return to Yahweh your God and listen to his voice. For Yahweh your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. So this is a brief outline of the future of Israel. They were going to act corruptly. They were going to worship idols and God's judgment was going to fall upon them and they were going to be exiled. We see that in their history. In, in 722 BC, the northern, you know, after the, we see it in the divided kingdom, that was judgment on Israel. We see then later in the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom never had a single good king. They were all wicked. Until finally in 722 BC, God sent Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom. It was just over 100 years later that God sent Babylon to the southern kingdom, to, and they were deported to Babylon. Now, we had the Jews return in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. The, ex, the exile in Babylon was only 70 years, as it was predicted by um, Jeremiah. Or, you know, God, through Jeremiah, said it would be 70 years, and that's what it was. So they returned to Israel, or many of them did, not all of them, but they never regained autonomy or dominance. The, the promised restoration hadn't happened yet. The, the return from ba exile in Babylon was not the promised restoration. And indeed, I would say the, the, the fact that there is a nation of Israel now is not the final restoration just as there was a nation of Israel in existence from, you know, 500 until 70 AD when the Romans wiped out Jerusalem. So there, you know, just because that nation is there does not mean the gathering is complete or that this is the restored, that the fulfillment of those prophecies are yet to be realized. And that's going to be in the millennium. But God promised that he would scatter Israel if they disobeyed him. And when we get to the end of Deuteronomy and we look at uh, um, the blessings and the cursings, we'll see that it's all prophetic. Moses never says, if you do this. He never says, if you do this. He's always saying, when you do this. So the, the judgment that's going to come upon Israel was a sure thing because Israel's disobedience was a sure thing. 
So we see that. Now, there's no mention here of the Babylonian captivity or anything. It's just that God will scatter you. And so this is, you know, prophetic warning that there will be disobedience in the land and you will face the judgment of God. And so they were warned against idolatry and at the same time they're told that they would break that warning and they would be judged. Now, in verse 30, Moses is talking about at the end of the days, at the end of days, the, the, in latter days, he saw that distant future time when Israel would repent and turn to the Lord and obey him. And in the MacArthur Study Bible, it says that latter days throughout the Pentateuch refers to the time when Messiah will establish his kingdom. And it gives these cross-references, Genesis 49, verse 1, and verses 8 through 12, Numbers 24, verses 14 through 24, and Deuteronomy 32, 39 through 43. Now, I'm not going to look at those this morning because I have an appointment this morning, so we're going to have a, a shorter program today. Um, shorter program. You know, I've been running long these last few days. Um, that's fine. That's the beauty of doing a podcast and not doing a uh, network show. I don't have a show clock. I don't have to take commercial breaks. I don't have to end at any particular time. I always try very diligently to start on time so that anybody you know when you can find me, but I don't, uh, don't necessarily hurry to the end. So, so God has made a covenant with Israel, and he is going to keep that covenant, not because they deserve it, but because he made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's going to fulfill that promise to a future repentant Israel. This is what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is all about, that God's not done with Israel that the promises he made to Israel, he is going to, to complete. He is going to fulfill. But he also has other promises to fulfill. He has other things he is accomplishing in history. Um, you know, it's, it's not all Israel all the time. There's a, there's a fuller program. He has plans for all of the nations. And, and so he has plans for the earth. And all of this is part of his plan. And, and that's really what Romans 9, 10, and 11 are talking about. And in you know, Romans 11, verses 25 through 27, we read this. For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, Paul's writing this after the cross. So this Deliverer coming from Zion isn't the first coming. This is the second coming. The Deliverer is going to come and deliver Israel. But it's not going to happen until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, which is the church. So God has, you know, he, he has an exact number. This is the thing about a sovereign God who's sovereign over creation, sovereign over salvation. He knows exactly who's going to get saved and when. And he knows there is somebody in future history who is going to be the last Gentile added to the church before the second coming begins. Now, we often think of the second coming as a single event. 
the second coming is not a single singular event any more than the first coming was. The first coming lasted 30 to 35 years, roughly. We're not sure exactly, because we're not sure exactly when Jesus was born. We're not sure exactly when he was crucified. We are told that he was about 30 when he began his earthly ministry, but we're not given his age. So we can't say exactly how old he was when he was crucified. So we can't say exactly how long his first coming lasted. And then, you know, was his appearance to uh, Paul on the road to Damascus part of the first coming? You know, one of the last events of the first coming? Quite possible. So these are things that we, you know, we think about all the different events that were encapsulated in the time, the first coming of Jesus. Yeah, you have, you have Christmas. You have the babe in the manger. You've got the, the shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. You've got the chorus of angels. You've got Jesus in the temple when he's 12. You know, well, you've got his, uh, when he's presented in the temple with the sacrifices when he was, what, 30 days old, 40 days old, whatever the, whatever the law required. Um, where Simeon and Anna made, made prophecies over him. You have, you know, him in the temple when he was 12. You have his baptism. You have all the different, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, teaching in, in the temple. You have the confrontations with the, with the Pharisees. You have all of these events that took place culminating in his death, burial, and resurrection. So all of these events are the first coming. The second coming also has a large number of events. And where the first coming was 30 to 35 years, the second coming is going to be in excess of 1,007 years. And it begins after the fullness of the Gentiles come in with the rapture of the church. Then we have the tribulation which is a time of judgment and a time when he brings Israel to repentance. And the way I read the scriptures, they will not fully repent until the second coming, when he comes in the clouds in glory. And as I said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, And so that's going to be the period of time when Israel will look upon him whom they've pierced and mourn him and repent and realize that was the Messiah that we crucified all those years ago. We need to trust in him. And so it's going to be a, a massive turning of what remains of Israel at the end of the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation, which is the 70th week of years that's talked about in da Daniel chapter 9. So when that ends... You, then that's the second coming. And that's when he sets up his kingdom. That's the latter days that is referred to throughout the Pentateuch when Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom. Um, I was just reading last night a little book by J.C. Ryle, who was, of course, an Anglican uh, minister in the Church of England back in the 1800s. Um, wrote the great book on sanctification, Holiness. If you have not read J.C. Ryle's Holiness, that's one I try to read through every year. Um, just a fabulous book. Fabulous book. Um, but J.C. Ryle also wrote a little book. It's actually a collection of sermons or lessons. They seem awfully long for sermons, but, but lessons or you know, perhaps they were series of sermons. They got edited together into, you know, single chapters. But I was reading last night and he said, you know, all of the, all of the prophecies of the first coming were fulfilled literally. Why would we think all the prophecies of the second coming would not be? And he says, too many people take the, the first coming prophecies literally, but they spiritualize the second coming prophecies. 
And he says, no, we can't do that. There are clear prophecies to Israel of an earthly kingdom. And God's not a bait-and-switch artist. Of course, Ryle didn't use bait-and-switch because I don't think that was a uh, advertising technique at that time in the 1800s. Might have been. Who knows? There's nothing new under the sun, according to Solomon. Might have been. But we have the, the, these promises of a kingdom to Israel, and they are found all through the Pentateuch, the first, the, book of, the, the first five books of Moses. We see it here that you know, in the latter days, they're going to be regathered. And they're going to live in prosperity. And it's a theme that comes back up all over and over and over again. Okay, verse 32. I need to move on fairly quickly here. Verse 32. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing, or has anything been heard like it? Once you get past creation, this is the only mention of the creation of man in the, in the Pentateuch. Once you get past Genesis 1 and 2 in the days of creation, the Pentateuch doesn't talk about God as creator from that point on. It's well established. He's in, and he's, he's, kind of looked at as the God and ruler of the universe. Um, and, of course, it's been established that he's the creator of the universe. But it's not something that is mentioned over and over and over again. It is mentioned over and over again in the prophets. And there are two things that God is truly praised for, if you read through the book of Revelation, the worship that takes place in heaven. He's praised for being the creator, and he's praised for being the redeemer. He's praised for creating all that is, and he is praised for saving sinful mankind. So this is really the only place in the Pentateuch that mentions the creation of human beings. Now, in all of history, in all of the time that has taken place coming up to this point, it says that look around and look at all the other nations on earth. Has anything been done like this great thing, or has anything been heard like it? Israel was unique among the nations in that no other nation had ever been gathered out by God. No other nation had ever been directly addressed by God. You think about that. They come, they leave Egypt, they get to Mount Sinai, and God talks to them. The whole nation, several million people, heard the voice of God. And Moses, that's never happened before. So, you know, they, nobody else has ever heard, you know, nobody else had ever heard the voice of God like that. No other people had ever received the law from God like that. This was you know, such an awesome experience. Nobody else had ever been blessed by this. No other nation had ever been miraculously delivered from oppression by another nation, as it happened to Israel. This is all very unique and very special. Continuing in verse 33, has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and lived? It hadn't happened to anybody else. It happened to Israel. Has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation with trials, with signs and wonders, and with war and with a mighty hand, and with an outstretched arm and with great terrors, as Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? The, the deliverance from Egypt is a topic that we will see repeated multiple times throughout Deuteronomy in Moses' final addresses to the people of, of Israel. And what God did in bringing e Israel out of Egypt. Unique. 
Never happened in history before or since. The, the mighty signs and wonders, the, the, the national scale miracles. Yeah. Raining fire and brimstone, you know, or, or, you know, you know, hail mixed with fire down upon Egyptian cities. Plague of darkness that covered all the land with darkness except for where the Jews lived. Uh, the flies, the frogs, the gnats, the boils, the sores, and the Passover. None of that ever happened before. And this is happening on a massive national scale. There was no denying it. it, it, it everybody could see it. And, and that was, you know, it's, it's hard to gaslight the people that have seen all of this stuff. It's hard to say, oh, no, no, it really didn't happen. <laughs> it really didn't happen. The Nile really didn't turn to blood. You're imagining it. You're not remembering it correctly. Yeah, they knew. They had all seen it. Verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, he is God, and there is no other beside him. The, Moses is saying all of these miracles and everything was clear evidence that God is real and clear evidence that he is the only God. This is a, a monotheistic statement. There is only one God. Now, when we get to chapter 6, we're going to see it even stronger. But this is another theme that we're going to see throughout Deuteronomy. There's only one true and living God. And that's very important. So verse 36. Out of the heavens he caused you to hear his voice to discipline you. And on earth he caused you to see his great fire. And you heard his words from the midst of the fire. Again, reminding them of what they had seen and experienced. Now again, I mentioned this yesterday. This is Moses speaking collectively of the nation of Israel the individual members of Israel that he is here addressing were not there. That whole generation has died off. Some of the older members of the people he is addressing were children when this took place. So other than Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, the, the, the people that, that remember Mount Sinai were little children when it happened. It's been 40 years. But he's talking to the nation of Israel and he's saying, this happened to you as a nation. You heard his words from the midst of the fire. So you Israel, not you individual people because most of them hadn't. He says, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. So he's saying that, you know, this was all done because of the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God chose to love Abraham. Not because Abraham was lovable. You know, Abraham was an idolater. He was worshiping false gods. God called him out of that. And God chose to love him, which is a picture of everybody that God saves. None of us are saved because we are worthy of salvation. None of us are saved because we're deserving of salvation. None of us are saved because we're worthy of being loved. But God chooses to love us. And God shows his love to us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. So, because he loved your fathers, Moses writes, therefore he chose their seed after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. God himself brought Israel out of Egypt. They didn't do it. They were powerless to do it. And Egypt didn't let them go. God had to powerfully pry Israel from the hands of Egypt. The, the Exodus, it's part, God chose Israel. You know, he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He chose to make that promise to Abraham, which then passed to Isaac, which passed to Jacob, 
which passed to all of Jacob's children, the nation of Israel. It's divine election. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. God chose to give it to them. He had this love for the patriarchs of Israel and for their children because he chose to love. And he demonstrated that love by delivering them from Egypt. Just as he, he, he demonstrates his love for all the elect by delivering us from sin through the crucifixion of his son. Verse 38. Dispossessing before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Clear statement that militarily in their own power, Israel had no hope of conquering the land. The nations that they are dispossessing, the nations that are being kicked out so that they might move into the land are all bigger and stronger than Israel is. Even though Israel is millions of people, it, it's not as strong as the, the nations they're kicking out. And so, again, this is a case of, okay, it was God who brought you out of Egypt. You didn't do it. And it's God who's taking you into the land. You're not going to do it. Now, it doesn't say that, you know, they're not going to take part. Of course, they're going to have to fight the battles. But God's going to give them the victory. Know therefore today, Moses continues, it's verse 39, and take it to your heart that Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am commanding you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days on the land which Yahweh your God is giving you for all the days. The privileges and the, the great advantages that have been given to Israel by God should be a prime motivating factor to obey God. The promise of the land, which was given to Abraham, is unconditional. I will give you this land. This land is going to belong to you and your descendants after you. But the enjoyment of the land is conditional under the Mosaic Covenant. So the Abrahamic Covenant is unconditional and it is eternal. But the Mosaic Covenant is conditional and temporal. And it's saying that you are going to be able to enjoy the land as long as you obey God. But when you disobey God, his judgment is going to come upon you and you are not going to be able to enjoy the land whether you're in exile or whether things are just going bad while you're there. So there are these conditional promises, obey, receive blessing, disobey, receive cursing. Those conditional promises do not affect the unconditional eternal promise to give them the land forever. And in the end, in the latter days, when Jesus returns and Israel repents and believes, then they will be in the land obediently for a thousand years. And then there's the new heavens and the new earth. Folks, we're not going to be sitting on clouds in heaven strumming harps. We're going to be living on a new earth. Guess what? The new earth has a new Jerusalem. And the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to rule the world for eternity from his throne in Jerusalem. So he's going to rule for a thousand years. There's going to be the final judgment. There's going to be a time of renewal. And then there's going to be a new creation. A restoration. A revitalization. Um, of his original creative purpose. He made us physical beings who live in a physical world. We are always going to be physical beings living in a physical world. That's why we're going to receive resurrected bodies when the time comes. 
because we're going to be living physically in a world without sin, in a world without the curse, in a world without death. And, and that is going to be glorious. But it's because it was God's intention from the beginning. Everything that has happened was God's intention from the beginning. And so, just as Israel enjoyed this great privilege, all of us who call upon the name of Christ enjoy as greater, greater privileges. Um, but God is, God is not going to disregard his promises to Israel. They will be fulfilled. And, and they will be fulfilled fully and literally, both in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. All right. Now let's recite our faith in the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the collect for grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, folks, I wish you the very best of Wednesdays. Like I said, I got an appointment coming up here, so I got to get ready to go. Um, but I hope you have a great day. Remember, do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.